You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-host Tony and we are talking about the Canadian side of the Yukon Quest. We finally have a winner and a finisher and a successful race it was. Tony, what happened out there in Canada? Uh, Everything went really smoothly. It was a small roster but they all finished. Uh, there, there were no big oopses by the race officials or any, I shouldn't say oopses so much as just controversial decisions, nothing like that. No big hiccups. Their reporting team of Sebastian Schnula and other volunteers worked very, very well. Fans are very happy about how much information video and otherwise were given during the race. So overall, uh, I think a really well-run organization, not surprising. It's pretty much the group that's been doing this since they started back in the 80s. I'm, I mean, I know that there have been retirements and whatnot, but this was the well-oiled machine side of the Yukon Quest. This wasn't a, a brand-new infrastructure of anything. So to see it go off without a hitch, not surprising, but certainly encouraging. It was encouraging, and we, we have a uh... – Yukon Quest Canada champion. I guess it's the first time with that. Uh, we have Michelle Phillips, a very well-known uh, musher in this race. And I saw one of her comments uh, at, at the finish, I guess, or right after. She said, uh, it was a really good run, but it was a little bit bittersweet to come into Dawson and uh, realize only half of the race had been won. And she's excited mm-hmm. to see it uh, hopefully get back to the full length international race. So we have, and that's my first question to you, Tony, before we jump in to the standings and all that. So now that we have two races under our belt and we've talked about this race for the last six months, we had no idea where this was going to lead in terms of, you know, the format and all that. But now both of them are, are done uh, and pretty successful races by, uh, both standards, they they uh, they they did what they had to do, if you will. What do you think mm-hmm. about moving forward? Do you think that they are going to do this same format, or there's going to be something different next year? I know I'm putting you on the spot, and it's not even the end of the year yet. You know, that's a good question. I saw something written on, I believe it was the Yukon Quest Alaska side. They were, it was either written or someone said it in a video. I think it was written though where they said they couldn't 
wait to do the 550 next year, which kind of made me a little nervous because we're really hoping that we will have a more positive outcome with that 1,000 mile race getting back together. Um, I don't know what to expect at this point. Um, both boards did very well for this new venture where they can't blame COVID or something else on the reason why they're split into two factions. I, I, I want to be, it's weird. I'm never the eternal optimist in any other part of my life, but when it comes to dog mushing, I want to stick with tradition. I want it to to continue. I want them to come back together and be able to work together, um, you know, renew their vows, so to speak, and and make this 1,000-mile race happen. I just don't know if they're interested in actually following through with that. I know the mushers want it, and I think that's where we might see the push. If more mushers got behind it, I, I think the board would would push to – the boards would come back together. So I'm going to do a little bit of a push then. Uh, you, you said if, <laughs> you said you think you're going to see a push with the mushers. So in both of these races, they had very uh, small entries uh, with the mushers. Mm-hmm. I think what eight or nine in the in the Alaska side, and I think it was six mm-hmm. or so in the um, yep. in the Canadian side. So that's less than 15 mushers. And I know that in a typical mm-hmm. quest, they have 20-ish sometimes. 25 is, yeah, is a real... Yeah, 15 to 20, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's a really big year if it's, uh, you know, up there in the in the 20s. I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of push from the mushers. If, if this is any indication that there's only a handful of them out there, there's just not the, uh, the bevy of... Uh, people that want to do the quest like there used to be. A lot of the people that we know the names of, they're not doing it so much anymore. If, if you can think about in the last decade or two, a lot of those quest names aren't doing it anymore, are they? Well, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting point, and you kind of wonder why. I think this year, with it being a split, I think there are some mushers that were just like, I don't want to do another mid-distance race two weeks before I did a run. Um, So you have someone like Dan Caduce, whose wife is on the board of the uh, Yukon Quest Alaska. So maybe there was a little bit of that too going on. But, um, you know, he could have easily come in and won this. Uh, Hugh Neff, as far as we know, was not told he couldn't run either of these races. He didn't. Uh, I believe it was a financial issue for him is one of the things because we did see him posting earlier this year that he was only running one race because of financial considerations. So, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation, but I would think that looking at those two um, rosters, if you were to have that 1,000 mile race, I would guess that most, if not all of those names on the 450 and the 550 would have signed up for the thousand mile race. You know, Brent Sass would be up there. Um, and, and I think Matt Hall too would have jumped from the 300 back up to that 1000. The only reason he was in the 300 was he didn't like the course for one for the 550. What about money? Uh, if, if money was a big consideration, uh, meaning, meaning winning the money for the first, second or right. third place or whatever, 
Isn't it pretty comparable, the two races, if they would have ran together and combined the two purses? That's about a typical payout for uh, for the quest. I mean, it's obviously not as robust as Iditarod, and Iditarod's way down in the last few years. But right. if they would have combined the two races and the two purses and, you know, mm-hmm. the same top two or three people that won both of these races combined, meaning Michelle Phillips and Brent Sass and Matt Hall mm-hmm. and, you know, those those folks who we've just named. Do you think that that would have been a, a motivating factor? It possibly could have been. I think if you were to combine both of them, they'd actually beat Iditarod's purse. I'd have to relook at that. Um, at least not the purse necessarily, but the payout for the winner would be very comparable. Right. Um, just the way that I did a rod breaks theirs down anymore. So, you know, I, it, it might have played a factor. I think for the quest though, it seems like more of the mushers, they just want the bragging rights to say they ran the tougher of the 2000 mile races. Uh, um, that is and, true. And the per- I mean, the purse is important, but it doesn't seem to be the motivating factor for the quest mushers yep um and it's 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 not really the motivating factor for those that are signing up for iditarod either especially with the purses you know just continuing to go down but it the the quest it it has its own set of bragging rights that just sometimes totally befuddles me like i I don't get it i think both thousand mile races are awesome so why can't we just love both (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. So it will be interesting to see. And I would imagine that's still going to be a topic of the off season for us here on on the show. <laughs> so looking see, looking forward to seeing how it plays out. And uh, maybe we can give a speculation or two at the end of our Iditarod coverage. So let's jump into the finishers. As we mentioned, there were only six competitors in this year's quest. We talked about Michelle Phillips coming in first place and then we had a couple of teams that were running out of the same kennel who were they and who were the rest of the competitors sure so before we get on to the um the you know who was with what kennel Milla Borsel came in um after Michelle Michelle had not as big a lead as what Brent did in the 550 but she had a significant lead throughout the entire race she just she she's queen of quest right now um it's there it it wouldn't have mattered if it was a 450 or a 1000 she would have been right there in the mix for first if it was the thousand mile race michelle understands and knows and loves the quest um milla was second in third place was rookie mela hill she was running a team out of aaron peck's kennel who came in fourth <laughs> uh, both teams were using this as a quote-unquote training run for Iditarod. Uh, Aaron, of course, is on his way, or should be now, in Alaska um, with the dogs, and he was trying to figure out just who he's taking on Iditarod, and so they were running these teams and giving Mela some experience in a, in a mid-distance race, and she said that this is the longest race she has completed, and she came in ahead of the boss, man, so that's, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, and then in, oh, go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say, yeah, when, when you're beating, when you're beating the, uh, uh, the guy that gives you a team, 
that that can hurt the ego a little bit, I guess. I, and I don't know. That's only speculating on on uh, on those two. But can you imagine if, if I'm thinking about other sports and thinking like uh, bike racing, and you have Lance Armstrong right. and, and his whole team, and and uh, if one of his teammates would have pulled ahead and won the Tour de France, and uh, he was you know the 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 lead guy, I could see that that could right. that could rub uh, rub you the wrong way a little bit. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because through the whole race, uh, anytime they were talking with Aaron, he was very, very positive about Mela. Um, so I think they were just looking at having a positive run for her. And, and he was just, you know, making sure everything was working with his team, uh, looking forward to Iditarod. So, uh, yeah, you know, most of the time we see the, the B team or the puppy team, they are nowhere near the uh, A team in one of these types of races, even if it is a shorter race like the the Copper Basin or the Testamina 200, the puppy teams didn't normally beat the uh, these season teams. So it's it was definitely fun and interesting to kind of watch those two. What comes to mind, Tony, is um, Allie and Allen, and they they had right. entirely different perspectives on on those races. Where Allie was always uh, the um, you know, the one, at least later in her career, the one that mm-hmm. was going to do well in Iditarod, and, and she built that team for that. And then Alan was always set up to do well in the quest. And that was sort of their their mutual perspective on it. Yep. You know, this is, this is my run and this is your run, but I am sure right. that the competitive flow was out there from time to time with both of those guys. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think Alan even said that in an interview uh, I did a rod insider interview. Oh, that was a little bit too much alliteration there. Uh, a few times where, you know, he's like, he'd love to be right up there with her. But at the same time, he had the puppy team for I did a rod. She had the puppy team for quest and she, but she got to run the quest 300 with that team. So she still got to win. So I think she got the better deal out of that. <laughs> and before we get into that fifth place, uh, finish and six. Now that we're talking about Allie and Alan, I know that they are supposedly retired, but what is the news out of uh, SP Kennel up there? Are they um, are, are they still are they doing tours? What are they doing? I haven't heard much of anything from those guys up there. I haven't heard a peep. I know that a lot of Allie's racing, well, Allen's too. Uh, racing dogs went to Alan's daughter, uh, Bridget, who, of course, has kennel on a hill. She was one of the rookies in last year's Iditarod that got caught in the storm, broke her body, and had to be flown off the trail. She's, of course, running Iditarod again this year, hoping to finish. Uh, so we know that the SP kennel dogs are in other kennels now, other programs. But as far as what Allie and Alan are doing, I've not heard anything. Huh. It's interesting that uh, we don't see a lot of those red and black posts that we yep. always saw during the mushing season. I, I mean, know. they were so prevalent on social media. I mean, they did it right. Not only did Allie and Alan do it right, yep. but their whole team, especially during mm-hmm. I Did Rod and that We've talked a lot about blessing and a curse of social media. If anybody did it right... Uh, in terms of social media, it was that that kennel there, wasn't it? 
for sure. And I know that, you know, if, if anybody's going to know what Allie's up to, I think our, our friend Alex would be the person to ask. Oh, yes. Because we all know how much he loves her. So. Yes. So, Alex, I, I'm sure you're probably listening because you've commented <laughs> a few times. What is going up with Allie and Alan up there in Two Rivers Fairbanks, wherever they're at? Let us know the inside scoop. I'm sure you follow them closely on social media. Or if anybody else knows, we've been getting a lot of comments and, and uh, feedback from our fans. What have you heard? From the SP Kennel Grape Line. Let us know in the comments or on socials. Okay, I digress a little bit. Let's talk about uh, fifth, <laughs> fifth and sixth place finish. And I understand you have a story for the sixth place. Yep. So, um, Luz, I don't actually know how to say her name, and I feel like I'm butchering it every time. Luz came in fifth, and then we have um, Connor McMahon is how they were saying it on the Yukon Quest videos, so I assume that's how it should be pronounced. Connor is our Red Lantern, and he had an interesting story towards the end. He had camped out for quite a while outside of the final checkpoint, just before the final checkpoint, actually, to the point where Sebastian Schnula and a couple of race officials went out to check on the musher and team. Everything was fine physically, but the musher was just really beaten down mentally um, felt like, you know, they were going to scratch, uh, you know, at one point they even asked Sebastian if they could just, you know, be towed in by, by the snow machines. And Sebastian and the race officials said, you know what, you're only a few miles away from the checkpoint. Why don't you mush in there, bed down, get yourself fed, get a nap in and then reevaluate and see what you want to do from there. You're only like 50 miles away from the finish here. You're so close. Let's not make this decision right now. Let's, let's get some food and sleep in you. So Connor got into that final checkpoint, uh, the time station as they call it. Uh, and after a good nap and some good food, his mood improved and he decided that he could continue on and he finished. He is the Red Lantern. And that just goes to show, you know, I don't think we hear enough about this in the race. We we sometimes, if you're fans of a certain musher, you'll hear the story afterward. You very rarely hear it during the race where race marshals or race judges, officials, are out there and actually encouraging a musher to continue. Um, the the other one that I can think of in the last few years is Mark Nordman contacting Blair Braverman when she was having kind of her low moment. Everybody was worried she was stuck out there in the middle of nowhere. I did her odd. And, and you know, after talking with race officials, she was able to continue and finish the race. Um, and, and that's just because this is what mushing is. Yes, it's a race. And yes, we do see where those same officials do make that call to cut somebody's race short, but it's not before they try to encourage them to continue on because they've all been there as mushers themselves. They know what it's like on sleep deprivation and the hangries and making decisions. So just to see Connor have that that support to make it to the finish, I think is all the more sweeter uh, ending to the 450. 
Yeah, and I can attest to that. I know a few weeks ago on our after show, <laughs> I believe it was, we told the story of my Tustamina experience and a race <laughs> official, Vern Halter, my neighbor, uh, said the exact same thing that Sebastian said to Connor. Connor it is, right? Um, yeah. Out there, hey, take a rest. Let us know later on. Do not make a decision right now. I, I know 110% that that is common practice out there on the trail, whether it's a 1,000 mm -hmm. miler, a 450, or a 200 somewhere. There are... Uh, those people making those decisions. So that is our Yukon Quest Canada wrap-up. But before we go, there has been some interesting news coming out about Iditarod. I saw, I hope I wasn't mistaken, but didn't I see <laughs> this week that Ramey Smith jumped into the Iditarod the very last minute with a late fee and everything? He did, and I'm so excited. I love Ramey. He's my—he's one of my favorite um, all-time mushers. So I was really excited to see that, but like totally shocked because if I'm not mistaken, I haven't looked to see if the rules have changed, but normally the late entry fee is double what the normal entry fee is. So instead of the $4,000, you're looking at $8,000 plus all of your race expenses that you're now doing last minute so kudos to Ramey really excited I did see on his Facebook page that he got his dog drop bags done or dog drop food drop bags done uh and I believe delivered to Iditarod this week because those those were due this week so uh very exciting um and then the news just yesterday last night actually and I don't think it's even official on Iditarod's website yet but Travis Beals from Turning Heads Kennel has decided to withdraw from the race. Uh, he cited some, some personal stuff going on. He's renovating his house with Sarah Stokey, his partner. Um, and they have some stuff going on behind the scenes that he just felt like he is not in the right mindset to do the race right with Iditarod. And so he is taking a step back, making the decision to say, you know, I can't do this right now. Um, so I, I just want to give kudos out to Travis. We know, you know, there's stuff in his past. If you followed the race, I don't want to rehash it because I don't think this is the time or place to do that, um, out of respect for, for him and his kennel. Um, but this is, this is a big step. This is a mature decision that we're seeing more and more athletes in all sports make where they, they take their mental health and their emotional health as seriously as if not more so than their physical so kudos to Travis. I, I really hope we see him in next year's race. I assume we'll see him next year. Yeah, and just to touch on what you had said about the food drops, uh, the Iditarod is in full gear right now. I saw just, <laughs> I guess it was earlier last week where they were doing the, the straw drop or whatever they call it, a, a mm -hmm. horde of volunteers getting all that straw out, and then they ship it out on uh, on the plains to the villages, and that's a huge endeavor. And I get, it looks like a big party with, when they're up down there uh, stacking up all that straw. And then you had just mentioned the food drops, and I think that that was uh, mm -hmm. later this week at time we're recording. Yep. And they had a bunch of pictures and everybody getting their stuff in. I, I saw Nick uh, Petit out there, or Petit or Petit, whichever, uh, <laughs> doing his, uh, his, uh, his drops and interesting fact. And maybe you do or do not know this as a mushing fan, 
that they give you up to a certain amount of pounds as part of your mm -hmm. entry. And I think it's 1,200. I'm not 100% sure. You get 1,200 pounds as part of your entry. And if it's over that, the musher has to pay. And I know they say it's called the rookie hump or the rookie bump. And you will sometimes <laughs> see folks out there with 15, 16, 1,700 pounds of gear. So well over uh, the amount that is included in your entry. And it's always interesting to hear those stories. And it's even more interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this during Iditarod, of the stuff that comes back. I have been over at Iditarod <laughs> headquarters when all that stuff comes back in late March or early April or whenever mm -hmm. it is. They're behind the headquarters. And my goodness, is there a bunch of stuff. And for folks that are trying to get a picture of that, think about the biggest pile of suitcases that you can possibly <laughs> imagine at the airport all stacked up. If you remember right around Christmas or whenever that was when Southwest had their debacle and they had the, all those pictures of suitcases that seemed to go on for days, that's what the return drop bag setup looks like. It's just a mess. And it's like Christmas to a lot of those guys because they send out their stuff and they get it back. And sometimes it's personal stuff that they uh, mm -hmm. are glad to have back or whatever. But that's an Iditarod story that I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> in a couple of weeks. And I say that because, what is it, just about two weeks from today or so, mm -hmm. we start our Iditarod coverage every single night. We're going to be on the air for the better part of two weeks. So hit that subscribe button. And if you really like hearing what we have to say, head on over to patreon.com slash firstpawmedia and become one of our community supporters. It would be much appreciated. Tony, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk again real soon. <laughs> and a matter of fact, in just a few minutes, because we're talking about the Goose Bay 150 recap and a race that we have not covered on the show very much, the Canadian Challenge. I'm excited to talk about that one as well. So, Tony, talk to you again soon. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.